Welcome to the Production First Mindset, a podcast where we discuss the world of building code from the lab all the way to production. We explore the tactics, methodologies, and metrics used to drive real customer value by the engineering leaders actually doing it. I'm your host, Liran Khemovic, CTO and co-founder of Fruka. Today, we're going to dive into how does production first looks like when you're doing mobile. With us is Barak Yoresh, head of iOS platform at Lightrix, the top mobile tool creator. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Eri, thanks for having me. So Barak, what can you tell us about yourself? So my name is Barak Yoresh. I've been at Lightrix for the past six years. I've been through all sorts of roles in the company. I started as a developer and then... Went on to be a technical lead for one of the products, building it from the ground up. And in the past two and a half years, three years, I think, I've been in the current position of the iOS platform lead, which is also known as a guild master in mm-hmm. some places. And basically, I'm in charge of all development in iOS in terms of quality and the processes, how to do code, how to do releases which is relevant to this conversation, et cetera. You mentioned you're from Lightrix, and that company name might not ring any bells, but you actually have quite a few very popular apps on the stores. Right. So I think the most popular apps we have, Facetune. So Facetune is a pretty known portrait editor. It's top-grossing in the App Store for the past couple of years now. It's extremely popular. And we also have other tools uh, like Videoleap, which is a... Video editor, which is also very popular, and Light, Photofox, which is basically a layer-based image editor. We also and we have several others. Mm-hmm. Who are your users for those apps? So we're a B two C company. So we basically have the users are everyday people, and each app has a slightly different demographic. Mostly, we're currently looking into creators. So. A lot of people have started working as creators. The big platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, even YouTube, they all rely on users to produce their content. So we empower these users and enable them, give them the tools to create better content, help them surface themselves in all sorts of tools with emphasis currently on the tools and making the best experience possible. I feel that can be quite a challenge releasing so many high-profile apps across different platforms. And before we dive into the details of what tools you're using and exactly how you're doing things, can you give us a broad overview of how does your release process look like? What's your release cadence, those sorts of things? Yes, of course. So releasing in mobile is quite different than releasing things like backend and web. I think the major difference is reliance on the platforms, as you mentioned. So that would be Apple in the iOS case and the Play Store, or all sorts of other Android stores for Android. The process of releasing a mobile application involves something called uh, an application review, which is quite different, and we can talk about that more in a bit. But basically, we can't really do a fully end-to-end, one-click release kind of thing. We are reliant on those platforms quite a bit. And how are you relying on those platforms? How is it impacting your processes? So uh, the release process is... Quite simple, really, but it does involve the platforms in certain aspects. So all of our code is hosted in in GitHub. 
whenever we decide to do a release, we have a one-click release as best as we can, which is basically we create the build and we upload it to the App Store or to the Play Store. At that point, we have some slight manual work to configure the version in the console of the platforms, and we send it off to uh, review. Mm-hmm. Now, most people, in, in, I think, in, um, in backend development or maybe web development don't really know the process of application review, but basically, I'll focus on Apple for the sake of this conversation, but it's the same on Android. Every version we release, even if it's like an incremental version, we didn't really add anything but solve bugs, every single version goes through a manual review by the review team at Apple, where they check the application, they see that there's no like scams, there's no glaring bugs or, or performance issues, things like that. They also do some static analysis on the code itself, see that you don't call and invoke any any methods you shouldn't. It's actually, I, got, I have a good story about that. At some point, Apple really got into privacy. So they sent like a, a list of forbidden uh, methods to call, <laughs> which are all the things you would probably use for fingerprinting mm-hmm. users. So... I said to myself, maybe I should keep this list kind of a useful list if I ever <laughs> go to a different job. So they do some static analysis and they also have like a manual process. And that process is uh, a bit of a pain. It used to take about a week. It got slightly better. It takes a couple of days now. But it's still quite annoying, especially when you're like, you have a hotfix spending or something that's really important, time crucial, maybe a promotion for a holiday or something in coordination with third party or like a bug, you still have to go through all of that. It's a bit of a pain. Also, they, at least Apple side, they don't really tell you in advance about new policies. So they often just inform you in hindsight, oh, you're not allowed to do this anymore. Please submit a new version. So the biggest example I think we've encountered several times is changes to the subscription screen. Mm -hmm. So our applications are usually in a freemium model. So they're free applications and you can pay a subscription fee for extra features and, and stuff like that, and which is kind of common in the iOS world right now and the mobile world in general. And Apple are pretty conscious about the subscription screen. So at some point, they just decided, okay, you cannot really say the price you'd pay for the period you're not paying. Let me explain. So if you have like a monthly price of $10 per month and a yearly price of, I don't know, say $50, and you want to direct users into buying the yearly price, which is at a discount, comparatively, right? So the price per month of the yearly product would be much less. It would be like about $5. So they'll reject your version saying the most prominent price cannot be the price per month you'll pay in the yearly version. Mm-hmm. So all sorts of things like that. Now, that sounds like, all right, they're just protecting the users. Um, but sometimes it's like really minute things and just like no change the font to be slightly smaller or something like that and they'll reject a version for that and we'll have to submit a new one so that's quite difficult how does the review process change the way you think of releasing software how do you find yourself preparing for that how do you find yourself scheduling releases to manage that that's an excellent question I think it's a bit of a blessing and a curse a good example would be the concept of pager duty and things like that is almost non-existent in mobile. So because the release process is such, quote-unquote, complicated compared to a one-click release anyway, we do a lot more testing. And once we ship something, we know it's there to stay. 
at least for a few days. So the bad part is that when we do have a bug that we find in production, issuing like a hotfix can take some time. There is a concept of expedited review when you explicitly tell them, this is a bug, let me go through the review faster, but it works some of the time. (laughs) On the other hand, you rarely have like issues that catch you extremely by surprise. Once you do like the gradual rollout and you get to a certain confidence that the version is stable, it will probably remain stable until you release a new version. Mm-hmm. I actually added PagerDuty in iOS, not because I needed people to wake up in the middle of the night, but just I wanted the features of like having someone say, I'm on top of this, I realize this is an issue, and I'm, I'm currently uh, working on it, and like escalation, stuff like that, that PagerDuty provides. And what I said is I'll add it on myself, on one of the applications, see how it works out, see how it feels. And, and as soon as I figure out like the details, I'll distribute it to everybody and to all of my tech leads. And I did that like a year and a half ago, and it didn't call me since. So, <laughs> so I, I didn't get a chance. So I'm still integrating pages. I'm just saying every engineer <laughs> listening to us right now is very jealous of you. Having a pager duty and never being paged. <laughs> yeah, well... But then again, there is a downside, right? We had issues in production where we knew there's uh, something that hurts the users. We need to send a fix. We got a fix. We found the issue quickly. We sent it to review quickly. But still, they rejected us on, on silly nonsense. And we had to just wait with the version. And they don't really let you do rollback. Mm-hmm. So if for any reason the version has an issue, has a bug, you have to release a completely new version from scratch. Mm-hmm. There is a concept of like rollout release, but it only affects automatic updates like for existing users. So when you release a new version, we obviously do it, but it's kind of weak. So we can say only automatically update to 1% of the users and then to 5% of the users and so on. But any new user going to the App Store will see the latest version. Mm-hmm. So new users are always receiving the latest version. And even if you pause the release, you find out there's a bug and you pause the rollout, the version, the app store is still the latest version. So you have to release a new one. From what I know of mobile, usually this marketing team is focusing on user acquisition. So they're pouring tons of money into campaigns, whether it's Facebook or whatever. And those users are going to go to the app store to download the latest version. So if something is going wrong with the app, then the, you know, the business panels, all the metrics are going to go down very quickly if you can't control what's happening on the store. That's exactly right. And alerting these issues and raising them to marketing is like one of the highest concerns we have. So as soon as we figure out there's something wrong with the new version, our top priority is to tell marketing, okay, stop spending money on campaigns. Because as you said, a lot of our users, like we have like a a steady stream of new users all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you build a CICD process to support this? What can you do with CICD? How do you ensure the highest quality to mitigate those risks? How do you automate working with the store? So we do the best we can. We have a CICD. We use Jenkins. We try some other solutions, but we always come back to Jenkins in the end just for configurability. Um, we have a lot of unit tests. Our developers are writing unit tests. We don't have like a designated QA team. And we're strong believers of testing. And every change goes through CICD and it has to pass all of the tests before it releases. We also have like, we also check on debug and release versions. And we have a system in place to check versions manually, mm-hmm. locally. So we've built like our own um, internal distribution mechanism. So whenever a version is uh, like a release candidate 
is made, we first check it internally with also various tools. For example, we have what's called a shake screen. So a certain version, which is almost exactly like the versions that is going to be released, but you have like a hidden shake screen feature where you shake the device and it introduces you with all sorts of debugging uh, tools. Most prominently, it lets you override which A-B tests and experiments are running. So you can check all of those without having to reinstall the app over and over, hoping you'll get the right variant of mm-hmm. an experiment. After that, we do have some sanity checks over the version, that's the, the binary that's actually being sent to the App Store. And we do that in parallel to sending it to the App Store again, because the review process is quite lengthy. So often we'll send the version to review while also doing like internal testing. And, you know, check the basics. Like you can input an asset, you can edit it and export, and you can buy a subscription, uh, mm-hmm. things like that. We also have like a third party for like manual quality assurance, which is working pretty well. They miss some things, but it's nice because developers don't really enjoy those manual testings. We call them like debug parties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so every release, you just gather the team and you say, you have like a checklist of things to go over and you do it. And you said that people might be jealous of me for not having a page duty wake me up in the middle of the night. Well, you shouldn't be jealous of this. So this is like not a fun part of yeah. manual testing. Yeah. How often do you generally release new versions? So it depends. We don't have like a steady release train where like every once a month and there's a release no matter what. It's basically as needed. Sometimes it could be two or three in a single week, depending on like hot fixes and things like that. Sometimes we can go as far as like two, three months between features that are major enough to release a version. Mm-hmm. Now, once you release those versions, once you've gone through the store, once you've gone through the review process and everything is rolling out, how do you monitor things? How do you know what's going on on everybody's phones, essentially? That's an excellent question. We have a lot of users. So we have like over 40 million monthly active users and monitoring is very, very important. We have several monitoring uh, entities. So firstly, we have our own analytics. So it's our own in-house analytics system where we gather a lot of metrics about the usage of the users, about conversion rates, about export rates, all sorts of things that the users are doing in the application. Additionally, we monitor crashes. For that, we use Firebase right now. Actually, we've been with uh, Crashlytics long before they were were in Firebase, even before they were in Twitter. But it's a really good platform for monitoring crashes. And we have some internal tool as well for monitoring uh, things that aren't explicitly crashes. So some limitations that Crashlytics has is that it won't alert you about when the system kills you because of memory constraints, for mm-hmm. example. Or if the application is not responsive for over, say, six seconds, the OS will kill you. Mm-hmm. And that's not considered a crash. So we have actually built our own like heuristic tools to help us with those blind spots. The existing systems don't, don't show. So um, I'm kind of wondering, you're getting all those metrics, technical metrics, business metrics, and they're coming in from over 40 million active users every month. How do you monitor them? How do you know when to look? How often do you look? Who looks at what? That's an excellent question. I think it can always be better than it is right now. But generally speaking, the way I strive for things to look like is that business metrics, like conversion rates and stuff, should be monitored by the product manager and by the marketing team. 
like constantly. This is something like part of the role is to make sure that the application is rolling as expected. Like that's the business need, right? Stability and crashes, the app not being responsive, what's called a watchdog event, out of memory issues. All of that is things I expect my technical leads to monitor. So whenever a release is shipped, there's like a follow-up checklist. So I said there's a, there's a checklist for the debug party. So there's also a follow-up checklist where you have to look at all the dashboards, see there aren't any new crashes that weren't there before. There aren't any unusual surges in crashes. Then maybe there's a crash that was before, but suddenly it's much more prominent. Mm-hmm. So th- those things happen as well. And those are kind of harder to detect. One thing that we know is hard to detect and we've kind of built uh, solutions around is because we are a freemium model, the majority of the users are free users, right? Mm -hmm. And a certain percent are paying users. Mm -hmm. And the paying users have more capabilities than the free users. So if there's an issue in a flow only premium users are exposed to, it might not be as prominent, right? We'd see like a really small crash that affects... Uh, Only the important users. Right. <laughs> so so we have to make that distinction, exactly. Those are the important users, and yet, because there's such a small percent of the entire population, we might miss an issue that, that hurts them specifically. So a way to work around that is that recently Firebase, well, not so recently now, but they do allow us to send the crash data into BigQuery as well. And so we added like our own uh, queries directly over BigQuery to just filter out what's the like biggest crash only for subscribers, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So we monitor that as well. So it's very important to separate the metrics between uh, paying and non-paying users to give those paying users the extra attention they deserve. Right. Let me ask you one final question I love to ask all of my guests. So what's the single bug you remember the most? So I have two that come to mind. So one... Is not very technical, but I will never forget it. <laughs> we had a user complain that every time he imports an image that is stored in remote, the application crashes. So in iOS, you have uh, like iCloud. I'm mm-hmm. sure Android has like similar things where the user's photos can be uploaded to the cloud. And whenever he wants to access them, they just download it on the spot. In the app, we... We also support that, so we show the images that are, that are stored remotely. We download them as soon as the user needs them, and we'll edit those photos. And I looked into this bug for so long, and I tried to check where am I leaking, what am I doing wrong, and I looked at like everything related to iCloud and downloading assets remotely and storing them, and what can I do wrong. And the user wasn't very responsive, <laughs> and... Eventually, he did get back to us with a screen recording of what's happening. And it turns out (laughs) that when you download an image that's remotely stored, we have like a progress indicator. It's like a circular progress indicator goes from 0 to 100. And for that particular user, for some reason, every time the progress indicator refreshed, like changed its length, it also grew. The entire view, (laughs) the entire widget just grew. And it grew and grew and grew until there was no memory left on the device and the application crashed. And the user didn't really notice. I guess he thought it was supposed to look like that. It was kind of strange. But yeah, and we never figured out exactly why. And we know it's uh, probably like a cyclic or layout issue. Mm -hmm. So basically uh, when you don't really give a fixed size to things, right? You want them to be relative to other UI components. And 
we probably had like a cyclic relationship of some sort, which made it like invalidate itself over and over again, just choose a slightly bigger size. But it wasn't consistent on that screen size. So it was just this user. We never reproduced it. And that was a weird thing. The other one is a bit more magical. And I was more like on the sideline for that one, but it's still quite an amazing story. We had this very, very strange issue where a certain array of, I don't know, it was face data or something, I don't recall, would change when you call a function that's completely unrelated. So you had an array of something, of data, then you called a function that didn't get it as an input, <laughs> didn't change it in, the, in like the return value, didn't affect it at all, but you saw it change. And I was completely stumped by this. I really didn't know how to proceed. And my CTO, Yaron, came in it was like slightly like watching poetry. <laughs> um, so it only happened on release versions. So he compiled the specific file like with maximum optimizations, but still kept it in debug so we can see the debugger. And it turns out that the particular function was from um, like a high performance framework that Apple gives. And it uses a lot of, some of the parameters are passed through the registers rather than like, like designated registers instead of through the stack. And on certain conditions with certain values, they had a bug that it read from the wrong register and it manipulated and changed the poor array that wasn't even related to the method call. So <laughs> I'll never forget that one. Yeah, it's a very hard to find bug, definitely. Yeah. I have to disassemble the code itself because uh, the source code is lying or so more the compiler is doing things wrong. Right. I just can't forget the fact that you just you step over, like in the debugger, and you see it change, and you just say, I don't understand how. <laughs> well, now you do. Now we do. I'm guessing you guys are hiring? Yes. So thank you for the shout-out. Um, Lightrix is expanding all the time. We're hiring at full force now. And we're hiring mobile developers, front-end web developers, back-end developers. We're actually going into uh, quite of a big endeavor in back-end. So historically, we'd mostly been around mobile, but we're doing a lot of backend now with all sorts of new tools we are offering to creators. And as always, mobile is uh, as strong as ever. So come work at Lightrix. Thanks, Barack, for joining us. It's been fun having you and learning a bit more about mobile uh, development and uh, production-first uh, engineering. And thanks, everybody, for listening in. Thank you for having me. So that's a wrap on another episode of the Production First Mindset. Please remember to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Let us know what you think of the show and reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Production First. Thanks again for joining us.